contemplation now. A contemplation in the Buddhist terminology is distinct from meditation. But often people find it difficult to make that distinction because unfortunately during meditation they're also thinking. So we have to be very clear what is a contemplation and what is a meditation. Now I gave you a clue yesterday already, yesterday evening, that in order to change our whole relationship to ourselves, others, and the world, we have to get in touch with our inner feelings, with what our inner life is like without thinking about it. The experience of feeling which comes when we are able long enough to stop the thinking process. Now that's in meditation because it means concentration. It means one-pointed, single-pointed concentration. And that's what we're trying when we're watching the breath. To get towards serenity, calm. Now in contemplation, we do something else. We take a subject of universal importance and universal truth and look at it and see how it applies to ourselves. Without that facile idea in the mind, well yes of course that's true, so what else is new? This is how we usually react to universal truth. We're all going to die, so what are we going to do about it, huh? Well, what we're going to do about it is, hopefully, to live in that realization so that each moment becomes a jewel for us and others. But for that, we have to become totally aware of our dying. So it's a universal truth that we use in contemplation, which is true for everyone, but we relate it to ourselves and look at our own reaction to it. This is not the usual discursive thinking and it's also not the one-pointed concentration for serenity. But it is an inner listening to one's own reaction to one's own relationship to that truth and coming up, hopefully, with something a little different than the ordinary everyday realization, which, for instance, about death, everybody knows that, and who pays attention? Not even the people on their deathbed, usually. They want to be alive rather than dead. We have to come to a different kind of relationship to that universal truth. And only we ourselves can do it. And if we have resistance and reaction 
to that negative, get to know it. Realize that what that does to oneself, any resistance, any negativity, it doesn't matter what kind it is, is harmful. It doesn't matter whether we dislike an awful dictator, whether we dislike our own death, or whether we dislike our neighbor. Dislike is dislike. It doesn't make any difference. And we can call it, less politely, hate. Dislike is a polite version of hate. Now, contemplation uses our facility and faculty to think in a very knowledgeable manner but it stays on the one subject and listens very clearly to how we understand that subject and what our way of dealing with it is. That way comes wisdom. We can read as much as we like, we can hear as much as we like, no wisdom will arise unless we start listening to our own relationship to universal truth. This is um, about as much as one can say about contemplation later on when we have the questioning time and it isn't clear we can discuss it more. At this point in time we will do it. I will say the sentence, I will ask you to repeat it after me, and then I will say something about it to help with the contemplation. That doesn't need to be repeated, that's only some assistance in the contemplation. In order to get started, we'll put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Now please repeat after me. I am of the nature to decay. I have not got beyond decay. Now the first thing to do is to ascertain whether this is so, whether this is true, and then to find out how it shows itself in oneself, this decay. Then to find out about one's own reaction. Is it one of equanimity or one of resistance? If it is resistance, why? Try to delve into it deeper. If it is equanimity, what does it tell us about everything that exists? 
including ourselves. I am of the nature to be diseased. I have not got beyond disease. Again, we first ascertain whether this is true, whether we've had diseases in the past, whether we may be having some unease now whether this body is prone to that and then take a look what that tells us about our own body which we think we own
I am of the nature to die. I have not got beyond death. We don't need to investigate whether this is true. We all know this is so. But what we do need to investigate is whether we remember this, whether we have resistance to it, or whether we are ready. And if we're not ready, why not? that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. Here we need to see whether this has been true in the past. What we found dear and delightful, people, experiences, situations, feelings, whether they have changed or totally vanished. If that is so, what about that what we hold dear and delightful now? 
I am the owner of my karma. If we take that seriously, we are taking on the responsibility of our own actions and reactions and never lay the blame anywhere else. We can contemplate whether we're actually aware of this and trying to do it, taking full responsibility for our own actions and reactions. I am heir to my karma. Here we need to look at the fact that we are producing our own inheritance. If we want it to be valuable, useful, beneficial, it's up to us to make it so. We can look at our own reaction to that and see whether this is part of our thought process.
I am born of my karma. Here we need to look at the fact that our birth, the family, the country, the situation we come to is not accidental. If it were, this would be a chaotic situation. So again, we need not attach any blame to outside conditions. I am related to my karma. This is the closest relationship that we can possibly have. It's nearer to us than our own skin. We need to come to terms with it and live with it so that it can become harmonious. If we cannot Resolve that relationship will never resolve any other. I live supported by my karma. We can say that our karma is our life support. You may be able to look back and contemplate upon things in the past which are supporting you now for better or worse. You may find a connection, you may not.
whatever karma I shall do, good or evil, that I shall inherit. And this can be a determination when it has become clear that we get exactly that back what we put out that determination can come that we want to have a valuable inheritance as of now it's our own choice but it has to come from an inner certainty In the Buddha's explanation of cause and effect, the cause of having good friends, companionship with wise and mature people, has the effect of hearing the true Dhamma, getting contact with the true Dhamma. In this case, Dhamma is used the word is used to denote the Buddha's teaching but also it means the law law of nature it also means that which is good the word Dhamma has many meanings these are used here in this uh, respect getting in touch with that getting to know it How will we know whether we're hearing true Dhamma or not? The Buddha is very much against blind faith or belief. One is to exercise one's own intelligence and ability to question. And as one does that, one can find out about the truth when something in oneself answers to it. Not because it's comfortable, not because it's pleasurable, not because it's entertaining, 
or because my friends are doing it or because it's written in a holy book or because it has been passed down in a tradition or because the teacher said so or because the teacher ought to know very reputable person none of these reasons are of any value whatsoever they take away our own ability to find out to understand and to become really imbued with that truth it has to be our own understanding if it isn't that we don't understand it then the result will be that we will not continue with it why should we be interested in something that we don't understand just because it sounds foreign or it sounds as if it could be something very few people get really devoted to something that they can't understand if we have a hope that one day we might that too isn't good enough how do we understand by checking it up within ourselves and see whether it is so within by being truthful to ourselves about ourselves and then when we find out that that what we hear or read actually applies to that inner person the one we have to live with all the time the one that's giving us all the problems nobody else does if it really applies to that then we have understood something as long as it's something outside of ourselves somebody said something two and a half thousand years ago very interesting history philosophy psychology meaningless we can learn that at the university history philosophy psychology or even in high school we don't need the spiritual path and the spiritual emancipation for that it has to touch us where it really means something that is one criteria of hearing true dhamma and understanding that it is true dhamma the other criteria which we can use is having heard it even though we may not be able to actualize all of that in our own lives just yet yet do we feel uplifted by that prospect by that path that is shown to us is it an uplifting experience which takes us away at least momentarily from our daily preoccupations if it doesn't that do that we won't stick to it either 
sometimes people are so enmeshed in their daily preoccupations they can't even listen their time hasn't come that's all right it will one day other times people are so enmeshed in their daily preoccupations which are of course at that time either so elated their mind or so depressed that whatever they hear it's all colored by either elation or depression and it's also not meaningful the time hasn't come there has to be the right time for one to be able to realize that one has heard the true Dhamma and that the only thing that's now lacking is to make that true Dhamma one's own. There are several steps that we must take to make it our own. It's no use to leave it in a book. Books are so plentiful that we will never in this lifetime be able to read even one library fully. Never mind the thousands of libraries in the world. We mustn't leave it in the words of a teacher or in our conversations about it. That's not true Dhamma. That's nothing but an outer condition which we have taken on as another proliferation of all the other many things which we're carrying around already in our head. The head is full of stuff. The way to make it our own is to first read it or hear it and then remember it. And as I have already many times advocated, write it down and some of you are doing that. We can't remember what we hear it is impossible our memories just aren't good enough for it it doesn't mean that you write down every word you hear everybody knows how to do that telegram style the most important thing the one thing I really want to do then we can look it up and keep remembering it then when we have remembered it then we can start to practice. Maybe we have remembered only one thing, something about becoming aware of the fact that this body is constantly decaying, that it doesn't listen to our requests, to stay healthy and not die and maybe if we just remember that one thing we might investigate that more no matter where that opening of the door is when we open the door to that inner investigation we find a whole new perspective within so when we start practicing that which we have remembered it means that that practice can bring about a change within ourselves the practice means that we are actually aware 
of our own reactions, of our own feelings, of our own thought processes. And as we become more and more aware of them, we find those that we don't want to keep. There's no blame attached to that. It's just a matter of throwing out old junk, getting rid of it on a garbage heap. And by doing that, as if you were cleaning out your house, your cupboards, and looking to see what's all this junk that I never use, that I don't need, cluttering up these spaces here, getting dustier and dustier, being chipped, giving me no room to move, out it goes. Same thing within oneself. And as it goes out, there's room, there's space, there's openness to put in something new. The Buddha compared people who listen to the Dhamma to four kinds of clay pots. In the time of the Buddha, clay pots were the most common kinds of implements in a house. The first clay pot has holes in the bottom. You pour the new water in and it runs right through. So if we are like that, that means we are so concerned with other things, we can't hear the Dhamma. It runs right through us. That may happen. That may happen at times, although we are willing, we just can't do it. It's not the right time. The next clay pot is one that has cracks. You pour the water in and it seeps out. That's the one, that's the person, very willing to listen, very willing to remember, very willing to do it, but it's not happening. He's forgotten. Very human, isn't it? Very ordinary for clay pots to have cracks. It just seeps out again. The next one is one that's filled to the brim with water. Can't pour any new water in. That's the clutter we carry around that we're not willing to discard because we've had it for such a long time. We're used to it. It's part of our makeup. It's me. It helps us to identify ego support. I always react like that. I never eat this. I can't do that. I've never been able to. That's all old junk which we could throw out in order to make room for something new. If we're too full with it, we can't put anything in. So the best clay pot, of course, is the empty one without holes and cracks where you can pour in the clean new water and it will stay in there. And one can then drink from that very fresh and refreshing liquid which gives us a new feeling of 
It could even be a feeling of becoming a new person, having been parched and dry before, keeping the Dhamma within can give one the feeling as having finally found the source of refreshment and growth. These four similes are very apt because at one time or another each one applies to all of us. But we don't have to remain like that. Although clay pots get thrown out if they're too cracked or have too many holes. We don't have to do that with ourselves. We can change ourselves. If we find that what we have done in the world so far, while it has made a living for us, given us some pleasures, had some interests, it has all, meanwhile, disappeared again. And we've got to renew it every single day. Every single day we've got to make a living again. Every single day we're looking for pleasures and comfort. And every single day we want to find something interesting. Which means we are totally enmeshed in the world which is promising to give us all that and bar the first one it can't do it it promises to supply us with what we're looking for happiness, joy and peace and because we get pleasures and interest and distractions we think we're getting nearer. And if we just did it a little more cleverly and had less interruptions by other people who are getting in our way, or if we could just do one other thing, certainly we'd still didn't make it. We still haven't got inner joy and inner peace and complete harmony. So then we start again. One other thing that hasn't been done yet. One other person. Whatever it may be, everybody's got a list a mile long. And having hooked them off one by one, there's always another one. If we've done that long enough, and have actually seen the dissatisfaction arising within, then we know what the word dukkha means. Dukkha is a catchword for everything that arises within which isn't satisfactory. And it is particularly based on the fact that no matter how satisfying anything can be, it doesn't remain that way. It has to change. And this is the one contemplation which applies to that aspect is all that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. 
we need to investigate that within ourselves nothing like that needs to be taken on sight or on belief we just need enough confidence to actually investigate it if we don't investigate it it's never going to be our own it's always going to be an interesting subject miles removed from our own heart when we see the truth of it within then it becomes interesting and then we are open to listen to the words of the Buddha which say there is something else there is a way there is a way to get out of all dukkha he said there's only one thing I teach and that's dukkha and its end to reach now he doesn't have to teach us dukkha we all have it but what he has to teach us is to see it in the smallest things dukkha is not tragedy it is that too but that's not its meaning dukkha is not only when we're sick or when our loved ones die it is that too dukkha is that inner feeling that things are not exactly the way they could be there ought to be something more it is that inner yearning in the heart for a complete and utter peacefulness and contentment and if we have paid any attention in the past years to ourselves and our surroundings it must be obvious to us that that is not available in worldly matters and worldly subjects and worldly endeavors they just do not contain inner peace and inner contentment because there is that constant striving to get them and then striving to keep them and striving or wanting or craving is the cause for all dukkha the true Dhamma in the words of the Buddha contains the four noble truths with the noble eightfold path the first two noble truths we can check out by ourselves anytime we wish the first one says that there is dukkha and the second one says there's only one cause for it and that's wanting craving wanting to have or wanting to get rid of check it out in meditation you'd like to be concentrated but you're not so dissatisfied you've got thoughts and they keep coming and you want to get rid of them no inner peace it's wanting something I haven't got wanting to get rid of something I have all that we experience in the world all the time in fact we're so used to it it's so habitual that most people can't see it 
it takes contemplation and introspection to see it it's our habitual mode of living getting this doing that getting rid of something else getting something new meeting somebody new going to another place constant movement because there's no inner satisfaction if that has become clear to us then we're ready to do something about the Dhamma to do it not to hear it that's only the trigger it's called the finger pointing to the moon certainly not the moon itself doing something about it has to be accomplished by each person for him or herself nobody can do anything for another nobody can teach wisdom or learn wisdom nobody can teach peace and joy we've all got to manufacture those things within what the Buddha taught and what is our good fortune to know about are methods and means and looking at our own selves and what is happening around us in a different way that's all the rest we all have to do ourselves one of its great attractions is that, that the Buddha's teachings are a do-it-yourself job there's nobody there that can be made responsible only ourselves and with that we come to the point where after having remembered and actually trying to practice we use any mindfulness that we have generated in meditation which means attention watching bare attention in our relationship to ourselves we become aware how we react why we react and as we understand the why we have the understood experience and the understood experience is the only way to gain wisdom the Buddha's Dhamma is divided into three parts Sila Samadhi and Panya Moral Conduct, Concentration and Wisdom If we want to gain wisdom we can only find that within and as we gain wisdom or insight whichever way we like to call it the same thing as we gain that life, ourselves, the world look different now one of our important ways of doing that would be contemplation naturally meditation sharpens the mind brings it to that quietness and peace where it can eventually see things in a different way where it's no longer enmeshed in worldly affairs during the time of meditation but knows that there is a different level of consciousness of awareness 
which brings us into a different relationship with ourselves and the world. But everybody has to also live in the world. And we can't meditate all day long. So we need a contemplative attitude towards that which is happening within and without. We don't anymore allow things in our mind just to happen. The reactions and the thoughts. But we watch them and realize what we're doing with our thoughts what we're doing with our reactions and emotions. And when we become aware of what we're doing, we will know that every negative one hurts ourselves, nobody else. We are the ones that are getting hurt. And once we see that clearly, most people will be intelligent enough to stop it. One has to be extremely foolish to keep on hurting oneself. We have to see it again and again that our own thought processes, our own emotions are the ones that are doing it. It's not happening outside. These are nothing but conditions. And those conditions out there sometimes are favorable and sometimes not very little we can do about that. We can constantly remove ourselves, but that certainly isn't peaceful, is it? It is as if we were constantly shifting around when we're sitting in meditation. That's not going to be conducive to meditation because it's becoming uncomfortable. When we look upon the Dhamma as our guideline, to do that, our mind will feel joyful, it will feel interested, it will know that this is the way to getting to know oneself. We all know so many people. Do we really know them? Or do we just know their names, their family status, their jobs maybe, and what they look like? Because that's what we know about ourselves. As much as we know about ourselves, that's what we know about others. If become become complacent, the mind becomes lazy. And it is not interested in anything except proliferation and distraction. That's the usual human mind. But if we are serious about spiritual emancipation, then we realize that the joy of knowing a path surpasses any kind of entertainment we can get. But we have to be awake and alert, truly awake and alert. We are often 
under pressure in our lives to do certain things and to be certain ways that pressure needs to be looked at to see whether it is something to help us with self-discipline or whether it's trying to push us into a mold now all of us are habitually being put into a mold not only by others by ourselves we need to examine that again the mold that we find ourselves in is like a garment around us which makes it impossible to see the truth the naked truth underneath we want to get at the naked truth so out of the mold out of the garment into the naked truth about ourselves what could be more interesting some of it may not be so flattering but then why should we flatter ourselves why not just be truthful it's far more helpful while we're here we're having an excellent opportunity to use the time not only to sharpen the mind through meditation which is of course extremely important but also to gain some access to our inner life so becoming extremely aware of our own reactions of the thought processes of the lack of peacefulness if it isn't there of the continual wanting something other than what we have all that helps us to realize where the lack of peace comes from here where we are quiet where we don't have any responsibilities it is an excellent situation to get to know that in daily life we are often overwhelmed with so many things to do that we can't get into that practice is not only meditation meditation is a means it's not the end meditation is a means to get the mind together to keep it in one spot and if it's one spot to get it quiet to realize that there's something else possible other than thinking most people know nothing else except thinking or sleeping those two we are familiar with but they certainly don't bring wisdom and they certainly don't bring that inner joy so when we do meditation to become concentrated our aim is to get to the point where the thinking stops and the experiencing of our inner being starts however most people find that difficult especially if one doesn't practice every day it takes time and it takes daily practice so we need to support that 
with gaining some insight. A little bit of insight brings a little bit of calm. A little bit of calm brings a little bit of insight. That insight we can gain through that introspection into our own makeup. What is it that I'm calling me? The word Dhamma has also another meaning other than the teaching. It also has the meaning of phenomena. And as practice, especially when we have this opportunity as we have it here, we can watch everything as a phenomena, which means objectively not as the subject or that it belongs to me but whatever it is that's happening within with objectivity once we gain objectivity it is possible to be truthful about it even when it isn't flattering when it belongs to me it's difficult to be truthful when it's just a phenomena it's not so difficult. When whatever happens within has become a phenomena, which means we are looking at it objectively, we then choose one of three characteristics which are true for everything that exists, for the whole of existence. As I told you earlier, in contemplation we have to take the universal truth and apply it to ourselves individually and see how it works. Is it really true? And if it is, how do I react to it? The three universal truths are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and corelessness. Out of those three, one chooses the one that seems to be most interesting. A person that is full of confidence in the Buddha's teaching very often chooses dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. A person who can get concentrated, at least to some extent, very often chooses impermanence and a person who is very analytically minded and tries to do everything with the head chooses corelessness substancelessness now with that choice we should while we're here pick out the one that's most interesting and look at everything within ourselves in the light of that characteristic. However, the last one is very difficult. And only those people who have practiced that for a long time have some access to it. It's not something that one understands right off the bat. However, impermanence, everybody understands that. 
and practically everybody forgets it. And many people don't even like it. So what we're doing when we are forgetting it or not liking it is we're resisting the law of nature. We're trying to either not look at it or manipulate it so that it could be different, which is exactly what we're doing with our environment. And that's why it's falling to bits. The first place to look at the law of nature is within oneself. Neither manipulate it nor resist it, but try to understand it. And then we will understand our environment too, because we are part of that environment. Impermanence is by far the most valuable one for us to look at because it's very difficult to argue about it, although some people manage that too, but it's rare. We can accept it as a fact and start looking. And because it doesn't need any particular knowledge of the teaching in order to look at impermanence. It needs no knowledge whatsoever. We need to know nothing. All we have to do is look at our thoughts and find a permanent one. can look at our feelings, emotions and sensations and find a permanent one. The thing that covers up impermanence is continuity. When the mind is very wild and doesn't like to stay on the breath, look at the impermanence of the breath. Just because it's continuous doesn't mean it's permanent. Each breath has to stop before a new one can start. If it wasn't impermanent, we'd all be dead. If we keep the in-breath, wouldn't take long till we're dead. If we keep the out-breath, would take equally a short time. But just because another one comes, we forget. We keep forgetting the law of nature. Impermanence of the breath. If the mind doesn't want to stay concentrated on the breath, let it look at the impermanence of the breath. And as it looks at the impermanence of the breath and keeps on looking, it may actually find a way in to the impermanence of all that we find in ourselves. Check out the thoughts, check out the feelings, the sensations, the reactions. Check out belongings. Check out material things. Try to find something permanent. That gains insight into the basic nature of the whole of existence. And as we gain insight into the basic nature of all of existence, our minds eventually become quiet. There's nothing to do. It's all been done already. It's all happening. What is there to do about it? It keeps moving, but we need to move with it. 
The way we usually handle impermanence is as if it were a flowing river and we try to put a dam into it. What does a dam do? It brings turbulence because it goes against nature. Use this particular aspect in the meditation. Use it outside of meditation as a contemplative aspect. Decay, disease and death are all aspects of impermanence. All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish is an aspect of impermanence. The first four recollections are all impermanence recollections. And see how it can come together within your own understanding that most of our dissatisfaction, if not all, comes from trying to hang on to that which can't be hung on to, particularly our own mind and body. As long as we're trying to do the impossible, we'll never be happy. Only when we start to flow with that which is flowing anyway and do not put any resistance in its path, then it will be possible to be at peace. That has often been misunderstood in the past as not going with the establishment, not going along with the ordinary way of social behavior. None of that, of course, holds true. The ordinary way of social behavior is nothing but a convenience and a convention so that one can get along the best of our ability. This goes far deeper. This goes to the actual base of our being where we are constantly deluding ourselves that there's a me in there. So in your meditative process, if the mind is constantly throwing up thoughts, use impermanence. In the contemplative process, outside of meditation, use impermanence. And by that, you're becoming more and more mindful of your own thoughts, feelings, actions. Even the body. If that wasn't of an impermanent nature, all its parts, each cell, each minute particle, why and how could it grow older? How could it die? Everything is impermanent. When you walk, it's got to be impermanent, otherwise one can't walk. When you eat, it's got to be impermanent, otherwise one can't eat it. One can't stay alive, it's got to be excreted. Everything is moving constantly. It is an important aspect that can bring so much insight that the mind can actually become quiet and say, all right then, it's okay. I can watch the breath. I don't have to think about all those things because they too are all 
impermanent, every single one of them. Whether they are pleasant or unpleasant, they are all impermanent. I'd like to give you a little time right now to ask some questions, if you will. Yes. In one word, unsatisfactoriness. Sometimes we use a whole string of words. Pain, grief and lamentation, suffering, all those. But the one word which fits best is unsatisfactoriness. All right, what else? Uh, yes. And that's the difficult one. Yes. Yes. And uh, the word non-self is a literal translation of the Pali word. It is literally translated as non-self, but it's not um, embracing enough. So the translation of corelessness or substancelessness is uh, much more embracing and therefore far better. And also, the word non-self generates um, resistance, quite rightly so, because a person or many people say, well, if there's nobody here, what am I sitting here with aching knees? Why don't I go to the beach? What's the difference if I'm not here? And uh, quite rightly so. So I do not translate it as non-self, although that is the literal translation and used in all the books. Yes. Yes. Um, I was just wondering about the meta meditation. Although it's called meditation, it seems to me like it's more like a form of con- contemplation because you generate the thoughts. It can be a contemplation if the feeling doesn't arise. What it is like, it's like this. In the Buddhist uh, terminology, we don't have just five senses, we have six senses. And the sixth one is the thinking. And uh, we also say that, you know, I had a sixth sense about that, so it is the thinking is used as a sixth sense. All our sense contacts produce feeling, each one. So the thinking also produces feeling. In the meta-meditation, if it remains a contemplation, it's a thinking process which will eventually tell us, yes, yes, I should love everybody, how am I going to do that? And then maybe one day the repeated thinking about it will generate that feeling. That's for people who are very much uh, in their heads and not so much in touch with their emotions. However, if one can get to one's emotions a little easier, the actual words are a direction in order to generate that inner feeling, which is then eventually the liberation of the heart. When it becomes 
without boundaries, the um, loving kindness, without um, limitations, immeasurable, ineffable, it becomes the liberation of the heart. And therefore, it can be both. And as long as it stays a contemplation, there's no harm done. At least the right thing is being contemplated. Right? What else? Yes. In the context of impermanence, can you talk about the difference between attachment and commitment? Either to um, another individual or to uh, a way of life? And can you specify it a little more specifically? Um, if Yes, well, that's the same question as I mentioned a moment ago, that if I'm not here, why am I sitting here with my knees aching? Why don't I go to the beach? Uh, if I have seen impermanence to its end, I am enlightened. And compassion and loving kindness is a natural way of being for an enlightened one. As long as there is the slightest rem rem remnant of unenlightenment in oneself, one needs to have certain methods in order to get rid of that. And one of them is to open the heart. And opening the heart will eventually bring that, if it you know, comes to its end, it will eventually bring that completeness of understanding and completeness of feeling. And then loving kindness and compassion are the only modes of being. So this is a practice path to get there. What else? Yes, Norika. Mm -hmm. mm, there isn't much of a distinction. Um, these are just uh, repetitions. The Buddha's teaching is extremely repetitious. Um, I'm related to my karma. You can change that and say, I am my karma. You can change it to that. Um, we are a conglomeration of all the things that we have thought, felt, and done. <coughs> and that's it. Nothing else. And uh, we can change all those things. So then we are different, look different. So it uh, is not a great distinction, but, but you could use it like that. Okay? Yes. Um, regarding contemplation and meditation, I've got a list here and I'll need the last few points I missed out on. But decay, disease, death, all that which is dear to us passes. Um, our own, we own our own karma, we're heirs to our own karma, and then there's something else after that, mm. which I forgot. 
Yes. Well, the last one, the fifth one, first four are all about impermanence, right? Decay, disease, death, and all that is mine will change. Um, and the fifth one is all about karma. So it's, I'm the owner of my karma. I'm heir to my karma. I'm born of my karma. Born, and the next one is related to my karma. Mm-hmm. Live supported by my karma. And the next one after that is, whatever karma I shall do, good or evil, that I shall inherit. So it's actually the same as the second one. But the second one goes more to the past, whereas this one, the last one, goes to the moment. This is now. Now we can make karma, now we can get the inheritance. Right? Got it? Okay. What else? Anything else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's two things. Could you clarify sort of what you mean by evil and good? Like it seems in some way that it's morally charged. And, you know, mm, yes, morally charged. Any spiritual path worth its name should be morally charged and morally based. <laughs> evil is unwholesome, unskillful, and good is wholesome and skillful. And everybody needs to know that. And all, there's hardly a human being, I don't know whether there are any, who don't know what's good and what's bad. Doesn't have anything to do with society and with culture. Culture and society, they have different ideas. There are cultures where one woman has three, four, five husbands and the other way around. And that has nothing to do with good and bad. But what we know, what is wholesome and what's unwholesome, if we don't know that, we wouldn't be able to live in society. We couldn't live with each other. And some people can't. They forget what it is. And what's the same thing? Related to last night when you were speaking about um, like friends or what a friend is or how to be a good friend or something, it was like to be there to do if a friend asks for something or needs something done. And I'm sort of like wondering at what point you sort of like would it really be detrimental to yourself if you kept doing it for someone else? That well, if you if you're physically unable to, of course it's going to be difficult, and then it will be bad bad for you if you become physically unable to do something physically. But it doesn't so much concern the physical. To be there for a friend is more your openness of heart and your support system, which is emotional support and uh, the helpfulness that can never be detrimental to oneself. That can only be good for oneself. One makes good karma. One does not have any problems about oneself because one's helping the other person. And as one helps the other person, that again is supportive instead of destructive. There's no way that can ever be hurtful. Physically, yes, of course. There are moments when you can't physically continue, of course. But this is not meant that way. It's emotionally. Uh, with the, the mind and the emotions.
my fields. 